welcome back to series three of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In season two, I interviewed fascinating people with a connection to Africa and to me. It got me thinking because I've had the enormous privilege to meet the most extraordinary people along this journey of life. So in series three, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with a good story to tell. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, Lynn O'Donnell is an award-winning journalist, foreign correspondent, and war reporter. She has an MA in war studies from King's College London, and she's a fellow of the Dark Center of Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She's also author of a fascinating book called High Tea in Mosul, the true story of two English women in war-torn Iraq. Lynn is with me today to talk about the book, the two English women, and where they are today. So Lynn O'Donnell, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, Pete. It's so lovely to be here. Lynn, the book was set in 2003 at the outbreak of the Iraq war during the height of Saddam Hussein's reign. And yet, nearly two decades after the war, it hasn't lost any of its impact or charm. Tell us about the book and these undoubtedly extraordinary British women, Pauline and Margaret. Oh, thanks. Thanks for saying such nice things about it. It does seem like a long time ago, but when I re-familiarise myself with what's going on in Mosul, and especially over um, the last decade, what's been happening there, it's like the war never really went away for, for that city. Um, it did go away for both Margaret and Pauline, and Pauline was never um, uh, her her real name. She wanted to be known as Pauline uh, for her own protection and the protection of her family because she stayed in Mosul throughout the war and, and for a few years um, afterwards when things got really bad for people living there. You know, night letters, threats, murders, sectarian violence, uh, kidnappings. Um, Margaret and her family moved to uh, London at the height of what was going on and they still live here and made a new life for themselves. Um, Susan, who is Pauline in the book, she now doesn't mind being known as Susan, and her family moved 40 miles up the road into Arbil and bought an apartment on a Turkish-built uh, housing estate um, um, up there. And basically, I think you could say they just picked up and transplanted their life into a much safer area. Her husband is a heart surgeon and he taught at the um, the training uh, teaching hospital in Mosul, which he now does in Dehuk in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, the kids have both left the country and um, uh, Susan works at the university with him. So they're all safe and out, but it was touch and go, as you can imagine, for a long time. But but Lynn, how did you actually end up in Mosul? Of course, this was before the creation of ISIS. Um, and what was the city like prior to the war? 
Well, um, I had never been to Mosul before 2003, um, but when I did go in, which was, it was part of Saddam's Iraq, so I couldn't go in there until after Saddam had fallen and the Iraqi forces had disappeared and they just melted away. And I, I got in a car, I was staying in Arbil, capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, and I got in a car very early in at the morning um, because uh, it was pretty clear, it became pretty clear um, that the uh, the Arabic cities, the Iraqi cities under Saddam's um, uh, rule were falling and in what uh, order they were going to fall. And so I got up very early one morning, packed some sandwiches and got in the car and drove into Mosul in time to see the place explode, I guess, is the best way of describing it. Iraqi forces just melted away. There had been, um, if you like, a kind of line of control between Iraqi Kurdistan and um, uh, Saddam's Iraq. And as the uh, the bombing campaign uh, intensified, what eventually happened, well, it happened very quickly, was that the Iraqi forces, Saddam's forces, just disappeared. And so um, the cities up in the north of um, Iraq, um, uh, Kirkuk and um, Tikrit and uh, Saddam's hometown and Mosul um, began to fall to uh, the um, anti-Saddam forces. And so I got into a car, as I said, and I drove into Mosul and on the horizon, I could see uh, smoke and fires because the looting had begun. And I'd been sitting in, in a hotel in Arbil called the Dim Dim Hotel. And I had watched um, on the TV as the major international networks recorded this uh, anarchy that broke out. And the same thing happened up north. And when I got into Mosul, what had been inside government buildings was now outside and on the street and people were packing stuff up and carrying it away. It was like a vengeance, you know, these are government buildings, this was taken from us and we're taking it back. I went by the bank and the bank was on fire and people were coming out with bags full of um, banknotes and a man came up to me with the money and said, what's going to happen to us? He showed me the banknotes. Is this going to be worth something? What are the Americans going to do? We don't have government. Look what's hang happening around us. And it, it, it was pretty clear that people were afraid and they felt totally vulnerable and unprotected. Later that day, I went down to um, uh, the governorate, which was on a quadrangle in the centre of Mosul, and um, the Americans started to arrive, driving in in convoys of jeeps, and they were looking for somewhere that they could um, uh, establish where they could establish a, an occupation headquarters, if you like. And I went in with them as they checked out the buildings, crunched their way through glass and rubble because the damage was pretty bad. Um, the uh, targeting campaign of the American um, bombs had been pretty accurate. And so a lot of the government buildings were destroyed or damaged. And um, as the Americans went into the governor's office, uh, thousands and thousands of people started to gather around the quadrangle. 
in silence. It was an eerie silence. And they, like the man who had come up to me outside the bank, were really worried. They were waiting for a sign that they were going to have governance and leadership, that the city wasn't going to break down into anarchy. It was a... Um, as a, a non-sectarian city, if you like. I don't know whether that's the right way of saying it, but there was an ethnic mix up north. Saddam had moved um, people of different um, ethnicities and, and uh, Sunnis, Shia, um, into uh, different areas so that he was mixing people up. And the People, I think, were very aware that this could lead to some sort of retribution if the lid was lifted, and we had seen that in other parts of the world as well. Um, and as we were in the governor's office, a sniper fire started to come in our direction. So the Americans said, let's go. They got in their Jeeps and drove away, and so did we. There were a couple of journalists that I travelled with each day and others had arrived. And um, uh, it, it, it was a signal that things were, were brewing and they were brewing. Um, there was a lot of uh, support for Saddam. Um, there was a, a lack of awareness that as in other countries, you don't get ahead unless you throw your lot in with the, with the leadership. As in China, you don't get anywhere unless you're a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, in Iraq, you didn't get anywhere unless you were a member of the, of the Ba'ath Party. And um, when the Americans came in and they appointed their... Um, uh, Viceroy, if you like, um, uh, a Bremer of the Desert Boots, um, he went about sacking um, and removing from positions in the bureaucracy anyone who was a Ba'ath Party member and um, anyone who'd been a member of the armed and, and uh, security forces as uh, suspicious backers of the Saddam regime. And this left a vacuum and that was, I think, the biggest mistake of, of, the, um, of the war, the removal of Saddam and the occupation. There was not a recognition of, of uh, the existence of an able bureaucracy and a very able uh, military that could be co-opted and, um, and secured in, uh, for, uh, for, a, new, for a, a, a new reality in Iraq. It fell apart. Uh, through ignorance and uh, hubris on the part of the occupiers, I think. I mean, the backbone of the book is about these women, but you also, of course, as you've just said, you write about the history of the nation during this period and how living conditions in Iraq um, altered over the next few, few years, in great part due to the rise to power or the, or the ousting of Saddam Hussein. Well, yes, it hadn't been a bed of roses for very many people at all um, under Saddam. Um, uh, Margaret's husband was the president of Mosul University, and so he was quite privileged and, of course, a Ba'ath Party member. Um, they did uh, quite well under the, re the regime, but times were tough. Um, I think uh, Susan, Pauline's family, um, did a little bit worse. Um, uh, but people still, you know, no matter who they were, they still had to live under that regime and under the, the conditions that 
that everybody, you know, lived under. Food was scarce. Good quality food was definitely scarce. Medicines were scarce. International sanctions made it very, very tough for very many people. But after um, things after the occupation, Saddam was gone, the Americans came in, there was anarchy, there was also a resentment and that resentment uh, expressed itself through um, a, a very uh, violent campaign against the occupation. But there was also a breakdown in the relationships between um, Sunni and Shia. Um, and that led to horrific violence. And my feeling in writing the book through the eyes and experience of Margaret and Susan was that um, when we're living comfortable lives in our own countries, um, our, our focus is on how we live, um, uh, getting up in the morning, going to school, paying the bills, keeping our jobs, sending our kids to school, feeding the pets, you know, um, going on holidays, just living our lives. And when the existence of other people becomes um, other, something that we cannot possibly identify with, and I've had this experience in a, in a number of the countries that I've lived in, um, then we turn it off. And newspaper coverage of what was going on in Iraq was filled with such horror and violence that even I didn't want to read about it. Um, I don't say even I, but why would you want to re read about young people being kidnapped and forced to pray so they could show what you know which type of islam they they followed and if it wasn't the right one having their heads drilled you know with electric drills and their eyes got gouged out and just horrible horrible stuff that turns you off and and it also turns people into it dehumanizes them um and I wanted in writing the book to rehumanize Iraq and Iraqi people. And I thought that English women uh, who had joined that society and become part of that society and were still English and therefore British and Western could be um, a vehicle to tell the story of people just like us, but whose society had gone to hell through no fault of theirs. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what I love about the book is that it isn't just a war story. I mean, it is a war story, but it's about family. It's about friendship and love and a lot of English stoicism, something many readers will associate with. Uh, I mean, the result is a book that interweaves the lives of these two expatriate women in Iraq, the ways in which they cope and the lengths they go to in maintaining ties to their roots and their homeland. Um, let's take a step back then. How did you get to meet them? Oh, on, on that day that, that uh, Mosul all fell apart in, um, in March uh, 2003, when I said before I got in my car early and got into Mosul, um, in time to see the looting and um, uh, the anarchy taking over and the sniping on the quadrangle, etc., I went to the teaching hospital. There'd been an incident a few days earlier where um, 
it had been reported that American soldiers had shot into a crowd of people in in um, in and around that area, and I I was investigating that really, and um, I went into the teaching hospital on a hill in Mosul, and I remember I still have pretty clearly in my mind the scenes that I, uh, uh, as I walked through the ground floor. It was dim because there wasn't very much power anymore. People were now relying on generators, which means you rely on fuel. Fuel supplies were difficult to, to get. And um, I was looking into uh, dimmed wards where there were bloodied gurneys and bloodied beds and blood smeared on the floor and um, uh, people are covered in uh, people wearing blood covered um, medical gowns and I was asking where do I find the president's office and people were uh, directing me towards the top floor so I found the stairs and I walked up to the top floor and mooched around there until I found a big conference room which was the president's office windows behind his desk and in front of him a big table and the heads of the departments came in every morning and sat down and they had a meeting about what we were going to do today um, and that was any day and every day but you know now we were in a in crisis mode and I was sitting at the back on a chair and I was waiting for the meeting to break up so I could talk to the president, approach him and get a, an interview on the record. And before I had a chance to do that, all the doctors and executives stood up and they started filing out and this man came towards me and said, hello, would you like to meet my wife? <laughs> of course I'd like to meet your wife. <laughs> Thank you. And he, he took me outside and uh, he didn't introduce himself or anything like that. It was just like, well, come with me. And he took me outside the office and there sitting almost behind a door in a little alcove was um, this lady, very petite in a big black billowy dress. And she was sitting there um, just quietly waiting to be introduced to someone it felt like. And and the, the doctor, as it turned out, he was a doctor said, uh, this is my wife. And I said, hello, I'm Lynn, how do you do? And she said, hi, I'm Pauline. <laughs> Are you now? <laughs> how nice to meet you, Pauline. Um, thinking you're not from around these parts are you I said um uh, how, how long have you been here she said oh well you know I've, I've been here about 30 years I'm from Lancashire and what I want to borrow your phone because I need to ring my mum and tell her that we're all okay she has no idea if we're dead or alive can I use your phone so I've got out my satellite phone and here you go, off you go. And she called her mum and had a long chat with her mum. And I just sort of sat there thinking, how did this happen? And I never got to speak to the president of the um, of the hospital. Um, Pauline or Susan uh, took me downstairs and I, I was looking for a fixer, a young local person who could help me go around the town um, and speak to people and she said, oh, you know, my daughter can do that. So she called up her daughter and, you know, 20 minutes later, her daughter appears and we called her Nora in the book um, to protect her identity. And she spoke with this really thick Lancashire accent because Susan's from Lancashire. And even though she'd brought up her kids in 
um, in Mosul, where else are they going to learn their English? So this Lancashire lass. <laughs> walking me around, um, walking me around Mosul and talking to people on my behalf as as a as a fixer for the day, um, and it was quite an astounding day. The the Americans came in with um, afterwards they came in with uh, helicopters, and I remember this. Sikorsky helicopter upside down, you know, chopping the trees into Tabuli um, as a as a warning sign to whoever was going to be um, shooting against the Americans, just show of force stuff. And anyway, that's uh, that came later. But we took um, uh, my driver and I took Nor home to. Um, uh, her place, their lovely house outside of Mosul at the end of the day. And um, Susan said, you've got to come back on Friday for lunch. And I just as happened one, to as be- As one does. One does, that's right, yeah. And I happened to be there in Mosul on Friday. And so, oops, lunchtime, um, knocked on the door and went for lunch. And I think, that experience was even more astounding than meeting her and having Nor the Lancashire lass come around the city with me for a day. It was um, not even on my itinerary, to be honest with you. I'd forgotten all about the invitation. You know, that's what, you know, daily journalists do. It's like, yeah, okay, move, moving right along, next story. Yeah. But there I was, Russell again, helicopters, you know, sending a a message of strength to any would-be insurgents and while we're here let's pop by so we knocked on the door and the doors are on the street and uh, big metal doors and walls so each home is like a compound knocked on the metal door and um, I could hear somebody running down the steps to the door and when the gate opened there was Susan and the family behind her up the stairs just having expected that we'd come by. No time was set. It was just like, of course, you, well, you were invited and so we'd been waiting for you. So bustled me in and they were so, so um, thrilled. You know, the welcome was amazing. And we sat in the, in the living room and um, just chatted and the kids, Jamal and um, Noor, kept getting up and running into their bedrooms and coming out with little prezies. Here, this is for you. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, keep, you keep, you're in their home, you're their guest, and they keep giving you things. And it was, um, and you're there for, a, you know, maybe a story. So there's, there's always something in it for you. And it was kind of, um, I still think about it as as just one of the most wonderful experiences of my life and my career. Yeah, and it was through that lunch that you got the title of the book High Tea and Mosul. Yes, um, uh, I thought we were all going to sit around and have um, have a, a family meal together. We'd all be chatting, and it's been like this for us and. Um, you know, experiences and uh, now things are going to get better. But it wasn't like that. Um, you know, in places that I've been to before, when you go in at the end of or what you think is going to be the end of a, an, a, an isolated, a period of isolation and violence, 
um, people who look like me turn up and you're welcomed because you might be um, an, an indication that things are changing. Maybe things are going to get better now that someone who looks like you has turned up. Um, but when we were shown to the table, you know, I was there with, with a driver. When I was shown to the table for um, lunch, Susan and her family left the room. Uh, it was just for us in that style, that Middle Eastern style where the guest comes first. And um, I was a little bit disappointed by that. But then I looked at the food and it was a real eye opener because the food was appalling in its quality, not in its presentation, of course. It was a beautifully laid table. And, um, and when I say the food was appalling, what I mean is that um, this is what was available. This is the best of, yeah. of what was available and what could be served to guests that Susan and her family were thrilled to have in their home. Um, the, the, the bread was grey and gritty because the flour that was used to made it was only what was available on the markets. Um, the chicken, uh, I've said before, it was like it walked from Syria. It was just... <laughs> <laughs> or maybe walked back and then came back again against its will at gunpoint. You know, it was just <laughs> awful, awful. Um, um, but what had been happening in Iraq was that because there were international sanctions, the UN was providing food and a Saddam cabal was controlling the distribution of the food and they kept what was good and sold it on the international market and um, what was crap was given to um, the markets to sell to ordinary Iraqi people. And so this was it. And later when I wrote about that meal in the book, the meal that had become the high tea in Mosul and um, the title of the book, uh, Pauline was really offended. It was like I'd said that she was an awful person, a bad mother and can't cook, you know. It was, oh, no. uh, but it wasn't, well, no, she was really upset and, I, and it wasn't my intention, of course, to upset her. My intention in describing the meal was to allow people who read the book to try and understand just how awful life had been for an ordinary Iraqi people. You can't understand if you don't live this life or know people intimately who've lived this life, what it's like not to be able to provide decent quality food for your children and your family. And that's what I was trying to convey. That was the high tea in Mosul. I mean, it's a, it's a charming book. Um, and I love the way it interweaves between the horror of war and um, the almost mundane life um, back at home. Let me quote a couple of reviews. The Asian Review of Books observed that, <laughs> okay, forgive me. This is a horrible story, but it's an excellent read. O'Donnell oh. writes directly, punctually, at times lyrically, but always with an objective and self-effacing flair. This is a harrowing story, but she refuses to allow it to descend into the maudlin. And then a reviewer for Publishers Weekly remarked, a thorough look into Iraq's past and present, O'Donnell's tale adds a human element to the developing history of a turbulent nation. 
Um, so I suppose talking of the human element, what happened after that lunch? What happened with Pauline and Margaret? Then as things descended into anarchy and violence after the 2003 toppling of Saddam, um, things got pretty bad for uh, Margaret's family because her husband was sacked from his job and that, uh, because he had been a Bathist and um, they decided that they would leave and um, in the middle of the night they got into a, a car and they drove through very scary checkpoints that I also had, I revisited most of while I was writing the book and it was quite terrifying and um, although there was a humour in it because they described to me how they got their mum, <laughs> her mum who hadn't been out of bed for a decade, they had to sort of like imagine getting a great big piece of wood that doesn't bend into the back of a minivan, <laughs> that's what they had to do with, with her mum and the, the, just the, the screechingly funny description of how they did that in the middle of this sheer terror that the neighbours would wake up or that, you know, the police would come along and say, hello, what's going on here? Where are you going? Anyway, they got mum into the back of the car. <laughs> and then they had to go through checkpoints from Mosul to the Jordan border. And really, I can tell you that um, when I did go back, which was after they had left, when I did go back, and I was driving through those checkpoints around Mosul and I remember sitting in the back of a car and the windows were uh, still, uh, it, 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 they weren't opaque. People could still see if they wanted to that there were, I was a foreigner in the back of this car. And I remember somebody, a security guard on a checkpoint approaching the window and my stomach just dropped. You know, that flip mm. your tummy does. Or when you're afraid or if you're a kid you've been caught with jam on your shoe and you've already said it wasn't you who raided the jam jar but that terror terrifying feeling where your body breaks out into you know a sudden hot perspiration that makes your body cold while your stomach is in the grip of this fear um, that I'm going to be dragged out of the car because I'm a foreigner and what am I doing here it, that was what Margaret and her family had experienced going through innumerable checkpoints between Mosul and Jordan to get out of the country. Um, Pauline, Susan, as she is, and her family wanted to stay in Mosul because her husband had um, a nice job at the teaching hospital as a heart surgeon, as I'd mentioned. Um, but Jamal was threatened. He was still going to school and night letters were appearing all over the city threatening uh, kidnapping and murder. If you don't give us money, if you don't leave, if you want to stay. And they got a night letter under the gate that I had been welcomed through threatening to kidnap Jamal from his school. Mm. And uh, they knew that these were very real threats and they did what uh, Margaret's family had done. They packed up everything and they got in a car and they drove across the lines into Iraqi Kurdistan, into Duhuk, and they made a new life in Duhuk. Nor, so, their daughter, had already married into another wealthy family, um, but they also have since left and I think they're living um, somewhere else in the region. But, yeah, they had to leave. 
Well, it's good to know that they're all safe. So, um, Lynn, we're running out of time. Tell us what keeps you busy these days. Uh, what are you, are you writing anything now? Oh, um, yes, I, I write about Afghanistan. After Iraq, I went back to Afghanistan and I spent quite some time there as a journalist. Um, I came back to London where I am now um, in uh, 2017 after eight years as a, a, a resident correspondent in Kabul, mostly. And um, I went to, as you said, in your very kind introduction, I went to King's and I did a, an MA in... Um, in uh, war studies, having covered war, let's do the academic side and find out what those who plan and make war, how do they think? What's their study? So that's what what I, that was my thinking about going back and doing that. My um, dissertation was about the development of the media post-Taliban in Afghanistan, which I find very interesting. And um, I still write now about, um, uh, about Afghanistan for uh, Foreign Policy magazine and whoever else will will take uh, what I write. I, I'm freelance and I'm working on a book um, about uh, women war correspondents through history, starting with Winston Churchill's um, uh, aunt uh, in uh, who covered the Second World War and coming right down to where we are now in um, Afghanistan and Iraq. Oh, it sounds uh, so fascinating. Does it have a working title? The working title is From the Front Line. Well, look, I yes, wish you all the best. Uh, please keep your head down. I often think about you riding in an RAF helicopter, your Hermes scarf flying behind you like Isadora Duncan. Please, for, <laughs> God, for God's sake, don't go the same way as her. No, <laughs> short scarves only. <laughs> Lynn it's lovely O'Donnell. to talk to you. Yep, Thank it you. has been such a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Peter. Lovely. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.